chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we'll be reading the section verses 9 through 20. Give us a, the context, but we'll be focusing our time on verses 17 through 20 this morning. Just wrapping up this first chapter here. As a reminder, Jesus has commissioned John to write down into a book and send that book to the seven churches located in Asia Minor. Within that book, there is the letters to the other churches, but the book is to be delivered to each one of them. Right? So the message is, that's contained in the whole entirety of this vision is meant for the church. And as we've said, the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation are not the only churches that were even in Asia Minor at the time. So it, the likelihood here is that this is symbolic of the church universal. Right? It's to every church that would receive revelation, as we know history shows us is true, how this uh, book was received. So he's writing from the island of Patmos, where he was likely banished for disrupting emperor worship in some way, whether he was simply preaching against it or whether he was, you know, discouraging people that he saw doing it or simply just, you know, telling his congregation to, with, to refrain from doing that. He was ministering in Ephesus, which would have been some 50 miles away from the island of Patmos at this point, where he was exiled. And we read that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, that he received this vision, probably at the Lord's day, referring to Sunday, and it's probably when he's reflecting upon his saints, the saints that he can no longer be with on the Lord's day, to shepherd them, to care for them, to proclaim God's truth to them. And, and in that state of probably sorrow is when the Lord appears to him. And he reveals himself, you know, the Son of Man in this majestic glory. And aspects of the image reflect Christ's role, as we looked at last week, as our prophet, priest, and king. His authority and his purity and his wisdom are all displayed in this vision as he stood in the midst of the churches. And the view was, was so stunning for John that it was so magnificent, it left him literally floored. He falls on his face as though dead at the feet of Jesus. And as Frederick Nietzsche would say and Later on, Kelly Clarkson would plagiarize. That which does not kill you makes you stronger. And oftentimes that's simply not true. But in this case, it does prove to be an accurate summary of what takes place here. John, what he saw struck him with fear so that he was left as if he were dead, right? Motionless, unable to, to do anything or respond and, and then what he feels and hears afterwards brings reassuring comfort. It strengthens. Before we read this section, let's ask the task that God was giving him. So before we read this section, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this particular aspect of the vision that John received, for the glory that it shows us, this image that it gives us to depict who our Savior is. Not precisely what he looks like, but to have this display of his preeminence, his beauty, his glory that shines all around, that strikes fear in sinners and yet brings comfort to the saved. 
Lord, help us to experience that as we reflect upon this passage now. Give us eyes to see the truth. Give us ears to hear this truth and then hearts that are softened to apply it in a way that brings you glory. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held Seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we open this section just looking at the the rest of verse 17. 17b. He laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. And we're reminded here the reassurance of Christ's humanity. If you're following along your outline, that's the first point. The reassurance of Christ's humanity. Notice the first, he doesn't just does after John has fallen at his feet. He doesn't tell him to get up. He doesn't tell him to stop worshiping him. He places his hand upon him and says, fear not. And it was a tremendously significant act. Jesus was full of compassion for his servant. Throughout his three-year ministry, he healed the unclean by most oftentimes touching them. He didn't have to. He could have healed everyone from a distance. He proved that on numerous occasions, but most of the time, he chose to touch the one who was unclean in the world's eyes so that he might cleanse them rather than be uh, you know, tainted by their filth himself, he has the power to bring cleansing. They didn't affect him, but he brings an impact upon them with his compassionate touch. In fact, we see him multiple times picking up little children, right, and blessing them. There's this physical touch. The fact that Jesus, in his humanity, can touch makes his compassion all the more powerful have you thought about that? That's, that's, that's been proven even in, in research and studies. Dr. 
Dasher Keltner points out just how important touch is. He says, a pat on the back, a caress of the arm, these are everyday incidental gestures that we usually take for granted thanks to our amazingly dexterous hands. But after years spent immersed in the science of touch, I can tell you that they are far more profound than we usually realize. They are our primary language of compassion and a primary means for spreading compassion. So he, he talks in, in this article about a, a study he conducted about 10 years ago where, and he describes the study, he says, here's what we did. We built a barrier in our lab that separated two strangers from each other. One person stuck his arm, uh, his or her arm, through the barrier and waited. The other person was given a list of emotions. There were 12 emotions on a list of paper, and, and he or she had to try to convey each emotion through a one-second touch to the stranger's forearm. The person whose arm was being touched had to guess the emotion. So this is both communicating emotion through touch, and then on the other side, being able to interpret that touch based on the 12 emotions that they both were looking at. Research proved that we are very good at communicating purely through touch, without any words, without any sounds simply through touch, without even being able to see the facial expressions. Right? Touch is more critical to expressing love and gratitude and compassion than facial and vocal communication. So touch can build trust and a sense of safety. It can reduce stress. Touch impacts our ability to cooperate with others. It brings unity. In fact, touch can even increase our generosity Speaking of which, next time the offering bag comes along to you, I would like you to place your hand on your neighbor and thank them for the generous gift they're about to give. I think it'll increase our giving 10% or so. Um, no, it's, it's incredible what Christ is doing here, what it's, what's represented by this touch. And then for him, he, he could add to it this vocal communication of fear not and very, very obviously communicating a, a term of compassion for John confirms also that John was terrified by the sight. If you could interpret his falling down as though dead any other way, right, this confirms that he was fearful. Jesus is, is acknowledging it. Fear not. And so it's a proper response when standing in the presence of holiness. But the communication that follows was meant to strengthen his faith, was meant to, to encourage him to comfort him. And so even though it was the appearance of Jesus that filled John with great fear, it was the presence of Jesus and the touch of his hand upon him that relieved his fear and reassured his faith, right, that he belonged there, that he shouldn't simply turn and flee, but that he should remain there clinging to his Savior. Although we don't experience that physical touch of Jesus today, he is at the right hand of God the Father physically. But he has sent to us his spirit as a guarantee that he is with us and that, he will, or that we will enjoy that physical presence for all eternity. And so by his spirit, Jesus has shown compassion and love to all who come to him by faith. And this is the kind of savior that we serve, the one who first loved us. And this leads, the, this reassurance of Christ's humanity leads to a confidence in Christ's victory 
where he begins to describe that victory in verse 18, but at the very end of verse 17, it's an odd place to put a, a verse break, but it says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So here we have the confidence of Christ's victory. The confidence of Christ's victory. The glory that John saw was a glory that the second person of the Trinity had before creation. We talked about this uh, last, uh, in the afternoon service last week. Right? The glory at the transfiguration that Jesus had from before creation. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 17, 5. So it was a glory three of his disciples had glimpsed at the transfiguration. And all but Jesus would again see that glory in his resurrection and ascension. So Jesus refers to himself as the, the first and the last here, which is identical to God's revelation of himself as the first and the last in the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, you, you see the same phrasing there in Isaiah 41 and 44 and 48 referring to God. So if Christ is the first and the last, then he is also everything in between. And this is, this is a, a grammatical tool called a merism. Right? You, you have the first and, and the last, and so everything in between is also covered by that. He's the beginning, he's the middle, and the end. He knows all past, present, and future events perfectly. So let's pause right there for a second. He knows Everything about you. There's nothing about you that Jesus does not already know. You cannot hide from his presence. But there's also a tremendous comfort, right, for the believer who longs to be fully known by God. He knows you and he's willing to receive you regardless of your past. Right? You can be fully forgiven by the one who paid for every past, present, and future sin that you have or will commit. It's tremendous hope in this acknowledgement that Jesus is the first and the last, that he has all knowledge, the past, present, and future. Jesus gave up the glories of heaven, and he was born in a manger. And so he didn't cling to his authority. He didn't cling to his his title there, but he lowered himself to the status of a household servant, even to the, you know, the point of washing his disciples' feet. None of the other disciples even thought to do. Jesus takes that role, and he humbles himself to the point of death, as Philippians 2 tells us. His death was followed, however, by his resurrection three days later. He's the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. He's now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. From there, Christ remains the head of the church. He remains preeminent in everything. He has the keys of death and Hades. So not only is he reigning sovereign over this present life, but he reigns sovereign over our future destinies as well, over where we spend eternity. He's been given all authority and power to judge 
the nations. And so that judgment will take place upon Christ's return when he sits upon his glorious throne. See, Jesus not only has the authority over life and death in this world, but he has authority over our eternal destinies. At Christ's return, some will enter into everlasting judgment while others will enter into his glory. And John was encouraged and reassured by these words. Do they comfort you? Are they reassuring to you? Are you encouraged by the sovereignty of our Lord and the redemption that he's accomplished? Does Christ's defeat of sin on the cross bring you freedom? Does his defeat of death and his resurrection bring you hope? These truths certainly should comfort everyone who's been united to Christ in his victory. That should be the impact. And if not, then I urge you to turn to him in repentance and faith. Not only will you be forgiven, but you will also be used. Right? That's what, what we see next in this section, the significance of Christ's commission. He's already given that commission to John, but he reiterates it here. Right? He, he has comforted him by his touch and his words of victory. And then he gives them a reminder, you're to do this. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. He's got a purpose. Right? Many scholars have suggested that this verse provides a, a threefold outline of the entire book. Uh, his initial vision is the things that you have seen. Right? So just the, this introductory vision that he's experienced would be the things that he has seen, followed by the letters in chapters 2 and 3 to the seven churches. That would describe those that are in this present generation, or that present contemporary generation. And then chapters 4 through 22 would refer to those that are to take place after this. And so they see a threefold sort of outline to the entire book from this verse. But if you're convinced by the idea that Revelation... Uh, is portrayed as a, in a cyclical format, then I don't think that outline is as helpful. John is commissioned to write everything that he has seen, and that will include things that he had already seen, things that are currently taking place, and things that will take place in the future. It's encompassing all of history. And so this is simply a reiteration of his commission to write his vision down. It's, it's not a subtle clue about how to read Revelation chronologically. Uh, it, if that were the case, then you immediately bump into problems when you get to chapters 4 through 5, which clearly deal with events that do have past, present, and future implications. This was a, a common formula of speech, even outside of Scripture, uh, to refer to all of history. This threefold description of history as past, present, and future. So Jesus is reiterating his commission for John to write down what he sees in the vision. Having been banished to Patmos, John was likely struggling with a sense of uselessness. Feeling like the very thing God had called him to as an apostle, he was incapable of now accomplishing. He was unable to shepherd the flock that God had entrusted to him. And the tension he felt would have been stretched to its limits, but Jesus brings to him a task that would have, been, that would have had an even greater impact upon the church. 
right? It wouldn't have just been an encouragement to those in Ephesus, but it would have gone well beyond that, even in, in his own day. But it now reaches to the universal church until Christ comes. And so it's interesting to think about how God has, has made us. But what generally restores a person who is struggling with despair is the exact opposite of what they think they need at that moment. And many of us want to isolate ourselves from those who have offended us. We think space and distance will actually help us to heal, but it is in fact the opposite. Distance from perceived threats only widens the gap between them. However, distance can make the heart grow fonder, as, as you've heard, when tremendous effort is made toward filling that emotional need. And so physical distance can, in fact, enhance intimacy between partners when various forms of communication remain strong throughout that physical distance, right? There's an emotional connection. Well, in John's case here, his commission would have, been, would have overcome any distance he felt from believers by providing him with this deep spiritual connection to all believers through the vision he had received from Christ. Right, he would have experienced not only his connection and union with Christ, but with the bride of Christ that he was writing to. Imagine the comfort he would have felt knowing that what he was seeing would be a source of encouragement and strength for so many future believers around the world. And even as we gather this morning to study this very same revelation that he received at that moment, we are the recipients of his faithful work, his faithful obedience to Christ's commission. And we too have been promised a blessing for hearing and keeping the words of this prophecy. We saw in verse 3. So that's the commission we've been given, to hear and to keep. We've been called to hear and obey God's word. As we benefit from John's obedience, let us bless others by our own obedience to this word. Let us read and keep with great interest, even as we listen to it being preached. Right? We are obeying and receiving the blessing from this prophecy. And so that's why it's important to consider this last verse, the, the relevance of Christ's interpretation. Again, in your outline, the, the fourth point is the relevance of Christ's interpretation in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus immediately clarifies the meaning of these two symbols in the vision. The, the lampstands represent the seven churches and we've talked about that already. The stars represent their angels. So we've seen the connection between the seven lampstands and also the candlestick that was in the, the tabernacle. Right? In, the, in the tabernacle, there was a single lampstand, though, right? And it had seven lamps coming off of that single lamp stand. In Revelation here, though, we see seven separate and distinct lampstands. So I like what Michael Wilcock suggests by this. He says, perhaps we are meant to see that in them, the church, as she appears in the world... Congregations located here and there, which can be isolated and indeed destroyed, 
as we'll see in chapter 2, verse 5. But on the heavenly level, the church is united and indestructible, for she is centered on Christ. Right? That tabernacle is that heavenly vision. And here in Revelation, we're seeing the tribulation that the church experiences on earth. And it's a reminder there's also this heavenly perspective, this heavenly unity that we have in Christ who holds us together. And then the latter symbol of the stars are, the, uh, are representing the angels. And, and so it may apply. Some have interpreted the, this use of the word angel in its most basic and generic interpretation of, of messenger. Angel can be read as a, a messenger, and so they, they would say whether it's some representative of the church, a, a human representative of the church. Uh, maybe a pastor or a local elder that's shepherding the congregation. But it would be unclear why Jesus would, would call them angels in this case, because he does use the word angel, and there's other terms that he could have used if he was referring to the pastor or a servant of the church. That would have been much more clear than using angels, especially in light of the fact that the use of angels throughout the book of Revelations, uh, book of Revelation, sorry, is, is angels that are in heaven, not human beings. So the, the likelihood is that this, these, do, the, these angels are angelic beings, um, even though the word permits a human messenger. So these angels serve as, as representatives of the church assigned by Christ. And Christ is, in, is writing this letter to these angels who are representing the church. So he talks about their, their sins, their struggles. He's not talking about the angel itself's struggle. He's talking about the church that represents, right, the angel that represents the church. So they serve them, and, and then he holds them. Christ holds them in his hand. And I think that's a reflection of, of him doing his sovereign will through these angels. Right? They're tasked with doing his will. Now, admittedly, we, we know very little about these particular angels and their tasks, their unique roles. Uh, there are other passages in Scripture that refer to angels doing specific things or having a specific task, so it's not outlandish to understand that in, in the same way. Um, we simply want to see them as supporting the church in their tribulation on behalf of God. And so once again, it's comforting. It's comforting to know that members of Christ's church have been given the promise of heavenly protection. Jesus had experienced the ultimate form of tribulation in his separation from the Father his humiliation in life and death are unparalleled in human history. But John also understood tribulation, right? And his readers would certainly know tribulation soon. So what built them up to persevere was their unity in the sufferings of Christ. Because those who suffer with him will also rejoice with him. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Right? Do not be surprised by the trial. It's not strange. Rejoice in the fact that you get to share in Christ's sufferings, knowing that you will also 
rejoice in his glory. That's the precious promise that Peter gives to the saints here. And it is reflected in this vision that John received. Wilcock wraps up uh, his commentary on this section of Revelation by pointing back to what John had said in verse 9 regarding his partnership with believers in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Regarding every believer, Wilcox says this, he is able to face the tribulation because of what he knows of the kingdom. He's able to confront the storm because his foundations are deep in the rock. The tribulation and the kingdom produce the patient endurance. That's the object of the book of Revelation. And so what John saw struck him with fear, but what he felt and he heard brought reassuring and comfort. For those who are in Christ, those who know Christ as John knew him, this vision and announcement will provide similar reassurance and comfort. It should be something that we turn to, to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us and who he is for us, how he represents us. Do you know this, Jesus? Have you felt his hand of compassion and heard his words of forgiveness? Have you been assured of your access before his holy presence? Is that the eternity that fills you with hope? Do not delay your expression of faith and repentance. Fall on your face before him this morning even, in recognition of your sin. And then declare your faith in him as, as your savior and king. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful display of glory that we're reminded in this passage, not only the appearance of glory, but the, the presence of that glory that John felt and, and heard. Lord, may these words be comforting to us as we go through our own trials and tribulation. Lord, as we prepare for a future that is filled with, with even greater degrees, potentially, of, of this kind of tribulation that they experienced, Lord, help us not to be naive. Help us to anticipate that, but to expect that we have a Savior who protects us, who guides us, who leads us, who provides for us even through that tribulation, and who once again ushers us before your throne to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us not to neglect that privilege now, as Israel, as Israel did and, and what led them into exile was their own idolatry. Lord, our hearts are idol factories. We are prone to wander, even as we sang earlier. And so, Lord, help us once again to fall on our face before our Lord and Savior and to cling to him and to worship him even now, not because of our goodness and our righteousness, but because of what he has done. In his name we ask it. Amen.